Well, you might have noticed my readings, quite a gloomy passage, isn't it? Someone said at the staff meeting this week, this is more of a Good Friday passage than an Easter Sunday passage. And I'm going to say from the off, the application this week is come back next week, um, where we'll hear uh, about the resurrection hope. But uh, please keep your Bibles open with me. Uh, It's page 935. You'll need Micah chapter 7 open in front of you, so you can follow along. And uh, I'm sure you'll be helped to have, uh, have the handout as well, so you can get an idea of, of where we're going over the next few moments. But when we're settled, let me lead us in prayer. Father God, we were singing earlier that we will wait for you. We will wait, we will wait for you. And that's our prayer, Lord, that you would help us to wait, that you would help us to watch that you'll help us learn now what it means to be one of your people in this world as we wait for the Lord Jesus' return. Encourage us, spur us on, and keep us faithful to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. During World War II, there was an American journalist who was placed in Berlin throughout most of the war. His name was William Shira. And as you can imagine, that wasn't a very easy job. Nazi censorship made his job pretty much impossible. But in uh, his book, The Nightmare Years, which was published, I think, 1984, well after the war, he describes the effect that uh, it had on Berlin when the British bombs first fell in 1940. Nobody was killed. No significant damage was done to infrastructure or to the Nazi war machine. But these bombs put an enormous dent in German morale. Here's what he wrote the day after the attack. The Berliners are stunned. They did not think it was possible. When this war began, Hermann Goring assured them that it couldn't. He boasted that no enemy planes could ever break through the capital's anti-aircraft defence. He made matters worse by informing them only three days ago that if they heard the air raid sirens, they don't need to seek solace down in the shelters. The Berliners are a naive and simple people. They believed him. Their disillusionment today is therefore all the greater. You have to see their faces to believe it. This is not what they signed up for. As followers of Jesus out in the world, I wonder how many of us are tempted to feel a similar sort of disillusionment. Perhaps you're surprised at just how difficult it is to be a public Christian. So you mention your faith and and you get a raised eyebrow. You uh, make an ethical stand and you find you're on your own. Maybe you feel like you're swimming against the cultural tide. And in light of this, I don't know, perhaps we're tempted to shut in, to sort of batten down the hatches of the world outside, stay safe in our cosy church community, shut in. Maybe we're tempted to shut up, to become quiet, private Christians with no real gospel impact on those around us. Maybe we're tempted to shut down, to give up following Christ altogether, because like those Berliners, this is not what we signed up for. 
Shut in, shut up, shut down. Well, God doesn't want us to be disillusioned like those Berliners. Neither is he going to pull the wool over our eyes, a bit like Goring tried to do. In our passage today, we're going to see a brutally honest heads up about what it's going to be like to be a believer in these last days. We're told explicitly what we're signing up for. But most importantly, we're going to be told how we might remain faithful to the very end. Or in Micah chapter 7, and you will have noticed it's not the most cheerful passage. The prophet is clearly quite fed up, isn't he? You'll remember he's living in a city uh, with idolatry and corruption. He's been warning them that the Assyrian army are just, just about to come. He's been calling them to turn back to God, their shepherd king. But no one's listening. So the NIV subtitle, just above chapter 7 there, is wildly inaccurate. This passage does not describe Israel's misery, but Micah's misery. Because he feels like he's the only believer left in the land. And that's our first point. The remnant will face isolation. Look down at verse 1. Verse 1. What misery is mine? I'm like one who gathered summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. When you were a child, did you ever used to go strawberry picking in the summer? It's sort of a quintessentially... British activity, maybe you did it in other places, you know, you park up along the road, you you get your bucket, and then you walk up and down the aisles picking out strawberries and lobbing the odd mouldy one at your brother. It was a great activity. Well, here, Micah heads to his local vineyard, and as he walks up and down the roads, bucket in hand, he can't find a single grape on the vine, nor, nor a single fig on a tree. At a time of year when there should be fruit, He discovers the vineyard is absolutely barren. It's a metaphor, of course, for the city of Jerusalem. As he does a tour around the city, to the marketplace, up to the palace, across to the temple, he can't find a single upright person, someone who who bears the fruit we saw last week of chapter 6 and verse 8, someone who acts justly, who loves mercy, who walks humbly with their God. He, He looks... But nothing. The city is spiritually barren. At a time of when, when the city really should be bearing fruit, there is none. Now Jesus found the same thing, didn't he? Before entering Jerusalem in, in Mark chapter 11, he heads over to a fig tree, he's hungry, he fancies a bite to eat, but it's leafy, but no figs. He then walks into the city of Jerusalem, goes to the temple, lots of religious activity, but no spiritual fruit. Jesus lived 700 years after Micah, but his assessment of this city is exactly the same. Where are God's people? Where are they? I had lunch uh, this week with someone in in the church who uh, is from overseas, and he was telling me just how surprised he is that there are no other out-and-out Christians in his workplace, 
He's the only one, as far as you can tell, and he's been working there for years. And imagine this to be true for many of us in our workplaces, in our social groups, at our gym, on our road. Let's spare a thought for our teenagers, who may well be feeling immensely isolated in their colleges, in their schools. But this shouldn't surprise us. Neither should we be surprised that within the broader, visible church, there are so few churches which are committed to faithfully teaching the Bible, that there are so few churches bearing spiritual fruit. I mean, Jerusalem, wasn't it? It was a city full of religion. But neither Micah nor Jesus found much evidence of spiritual life there. Now, at this point, St. John's, we might be tempted to feel rather smug and self-righteous, telling ourselves, yes, we are the faithful few, we are the remnant, well done us. But that's not what Micah does. And that's not what Jesus does as they look upon Jerusalem. No, they weep. And they mourn and they lament. And they stick around. Well, this leads us on to our second point. The remnant will face not only isolation, but hostility. Get down to the next bit of verse 2. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. So Micah is once again, he's down at the vineyard, he's walking up and down the rows, but instead of finding any fruit, all he's seeing are thorns and thistles. These are the plants which, which impede the growth of fruit, of, of grapes and figs, and they do damage to anyone who might brush up against them. No fruit, only thorns. And so it seems that the city of Jerusalem is not only empty of faithful believers, but also hostile to them. From top to bottom, we're told the whole culture is driven by a desire for power and wealth. Even kings, even magistrates and rulers, even they're in on it. They're they're weaving it together like a tapestry. Meaning the entire structure of the city is rigged against the godly. It's dog eat dog. It's deceive or be deceived. Now we were looking at this passage yesterday morning at the, uh, the men's breakfast Bible study. And when we came to these verses, you could see the men lean forward in their chairs. And, and especially the ones who work in the city, they're amazed at the accuracy of this description of what their day-to-day life is like. And one of them shared with us uh, his constant temptation to be dishonest in order to win contracts. Because when all his competitors are lying, deceiving, over-promising in order to get the deal, it becomes incredibly costly to simply state the honest truth. He's aware that his ethical stance has cost him contracts, which in turn affects people's jobs, which affects their wage increases, which affects their mortgages, and so on and so on and so on. How incredibly tempting it is to justify ungodly behaviour 
simply because that's the culture in our city. Being a Christian, it won't just cost you business. It will cost you a lot more than that. A following is a a genuine uh, job reference written for a woman who worked in human resources. Listen to this. Sarah is one of the two people I can name who possess the virtue of integrity in spades. Her increasingly high profile and popularity among the senior executive managers for her reliability and her trustworthiness. She saved their bacon on more than one occasion. It means she's been the subject of tall poppy syndrome. I suspect that by walking her talk, she has shamed other less principled colleagues in some way. And so they have taken every opportunity to punish her. Snide comments, open hostility, formal complaints, a whisper in the ear of someone powerful, These have all hurt her feelings badly. Sarah is a committed Christian. And this obviously plays a significant role in her values. You see why Sarah was looking for a new job, can't you? But in many parts of the world, and in fact throughout most of history, hostility to Christians isn't just commercial. It isn't just social. It actually is as violent as verse 3 suggests. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. So I hope you're going to join us at our prayer meeting on Wednesday night, 7.30, downstairs. Because we're going to be praying for the persecuted church. Who, just like in Micah's day, are facing state-sponsored opposition. We're going to be praying for, for Christians in the Sinai region of Egypt. Who, in March, that was last month, were ordered by local governments to either vacate their homes or to have their heads hung on them. We'll be praying for Christians in Sri Lanka, who last month, in March, had their prayer meeting invaded by a mob of 30 Buddhist monks, aided by police, and shut down their church from all operation. It's horrendous what is going on to believers throughout our world. We've got to pray for them. And so at the end of verse 4, the prophet tells us that one day, one day this injustice will end. Look at the end of verse 4. Micah says, The day of your watchman has come. The day God visits you. Now is the time of their confusion. The prophets, they often um, compare themselves to watchmen standing on top of the city walls. Uh, These watchmen, they're, they're there to look out for armies who might be on the horizon. Anything which might threaten the city. But now Micah compares himself to such as one of these. And he says that God's judgment is on the horizon. The Assyrians are soon on their doorstep. And the city is calling the city to turn back to the Lord before all hell breaks loose. The same warning must be sounded in London. People need to be ready for the day of God's visitation. They need to to hear this cry. Well, in verse 5, Micah now turns to address the remnant of believers with him in the city. So perhaps earlier on he he found the odd grape or the odd fig in the vineyard after all. But our third point is, is perhaps the most painful of all. The remnant will face betrayal. Look at verse 5. 
Do not trust a neighbour. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with her who lies in your embrace, be careful of your words. For a son dishonours his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. Now, Micah's words here, they're not a command. He's not telling us, don't trust anyone. Go and live as a hermit somewhere. Be really weird and don't say anyone at all. It's not a command. It's a loving heads up for God's people. He's telling us that opposition will not just be found in the city. It will be found within our families, even in the home. Notice how the betrayal here begins with the neighbor, then it moves on to a friend, then to your spouse, then to your own flesh and blood. You might be thinking, oh, this sounds, this sounds a little bit extreme, doesn't it? But just stop and think, this is certainly true of the Lord Jesus. His own mother and brothers thought he was mad, claiming to be the Son of God. They tried to take him away. His own disciple, Judas, handed him over to the authorities for money. His best friend, Peter, denied him at the very end. And so in Matthew chapter 10, which we had read earlier on, Jesus says that if he's going to be betrayed, so will his followers. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. But I imagine the words which struck us most in that reading, there in, in, in Matthew chapter 10, is, is Jesus' quote just before he quotes Micah chapter 7 about family division. There he declares, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword, but, but division. And then he goes on to quote these verses. Now in many places, we need to get context here, in many places Jesus tells us that following him will make us better spouses better parents, better children. He's going to help us become more loving, more devoted, more forgiving, more sacrificial. But even so, Jesus will cause division even at this most intimate level within the family unit. And I've found this to be the number one cause of pain amongst Christians in the church. I think of a wonderful woman called Trish, who's at our church in, in Dagenham, and uh, whose, whose husband, sadly, is not a believer. And last time we, we visited them, last time we went over there, I asked how, how things are going at home. And she had tears in her eyes as she said this to me. And each day I wake up knowing that the man I love most is on the broad road leading to hell. And what terrifies me even more is that I'm watching my two teenage boys walk straight after him division I think of my friend Henry who began following Jesus I think when he was 17 and wonderfully he managed to lead his mum to Christ a few years after that but his father told him this last year Henry your Christianity has driven a wedge straight through our family I want nothing to do with it I have another friend Nick Nick's grandmother held a funeral for him because as a Jewish man, he now names Jesus as his Messiah. 
And if we had time, and if I weren't breaching your confidence, I could tell you many more stories, even for within this very church. You might be wondering, why? Why all this animosity about Jesus? Well, I guess it's because normally within a family, there's a shared loyalty, isn't there? A shared love, a shared ethic. But the Christian's loyalty is first to Christ. Is first, our first love is Christ. Our ethic is defined by Christ. And so for the unbelieving family member, this can be incredibly threatening. And so our daily peace with Christ is a daily reminder of their continued hostility to him. Our belief is a daily remember of their, a reminder of their unbelief. Now, I'm aware this is not the most cheerful passage. And in fact, it's been, it's been pretty bleak, is it? No one's smiling at me. I'm not surprised. And if you're, if you're a guest here today, this is what I'm guessing you're thinking, and perhaps you're looking in on Christian things, I imagine you're thinking, why on earth would I become a Christian if I'm going to face isolation, hostility, and betrayal? Why on earth would I follow this Christ? Well, in our final and fourth point, we're going to see just a tiny glimpse of hope. And that is that, in fact, the remnant will always have hope. Look down at verse 7. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Saviour. My God will hear me. Both Micah and Jesus, they felt as if they were swimming against the cultural tide. They felt like they are the only ones in the city going God's way. But they didn't shut up. They didn't shut in and they didn't shut down. No, they made the costly decision to stay in the city and to seek its salvation. Now, in and of myself, I don't think I'm a particularly bold person. I don't know if you would call yourself bold. I think our instinct is often to desire to be approved of by our friends, our colleagues and our neighbours. So we go with the flow, don't we? Uh, to emulate their priorities, their work ethic, their use of time. We shut in, we shut up, or we shut down. To which Jesus would remind us that this is not inevitable. In fact, it can't be inevitable. Because as we heard at the very beginning of our service, by faith, we are bound to him. We are tied to him. Following Micah's vineyard illustration, Jesus says that he is the true vine. And in him, we bear fruit. So even if everyone around us is just bearing thorns, 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 if we are bound to Christ, we will bear fruit. And friends, the more you decide to be different just like Micah does here but as for me the more you decide to be different the bolder you'll become it's no surprise is it that, that around the world wherever Christianity is most opposed that's where it's most thriving because faith rises in the face of opposition it leads people to say you know what as for me, as for me, I'm going to go God's way.
Friends, we decide to be different. The second thing I think we can notice from Micah here is how he watches and waits. He says, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Saviour. As Micah stands watch on top of those city walls, I imagine he's got, he's got somewhat mixed feelings. He wants to warn the city that the Lord is coming. He wants them to be found safe for the day of judgment. But at the same time, he can't wait for that day to come because he knows his shepherd king is, is going to bring an end to all the injustice, to all the suffering. So as Christians, we, we too, we find ourselves atop this city wall, don't we? Acting as watchmen. We're seeking to warn the people in our city about the coming judgment. We want our friends, we want our families, we want our neighbours to be found ready for Jesus' return. But we too also want an end to injustice. We want our king to come and make us safe. So on our prayers, I, I, I imagine we're torn, aren't we? We're torn, but what, what do we pray for? Out of love for our unbelieving friends and family, we pray that his return would be delayed. But in solidarity with our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, we also pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly. Both are good prayers. But I, I imagine perhaps our reluctance to pray that second prayer is down to the fact we don't really suffer for the gospel at all. Micah watches and waits. But finally, notice how Micah prays with confidence. His very last phrase, my God will hear me. It's funny, isn't it? That's been the repeated word throughout this entire book. Listen, God says. Listen, listen, listen. Well, how comforting it is to know that in the midst of our suffering, God listens to us. God hears us. And he loves to hear our prayer. And we know that he hears our prayer because he heard Jesus' prayer. He vindicated him. He lifted him up from the grave up to the sky. And you know what? We're bound to him. We're tied to him. And so we're going to be vindicated too. In the year 1900, it was the, uh, the Boxer Rebellion in China. And insurgents, they managed to capture a Christian mission station. They blocked all of the gates of this station apart from one. And the place was full of these uh, students learning how to be missionaries. And in front of that single gate... The insurgents, they, 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 they snatched one of these crosses, a bit like that, and they threw it on the, on the ground before all the gathered students. Then they said to them, we're going to let you go free. We're going to let you all go free as long as you trample on that cross on your way out. Anyone who tramples on the cross, denies your Lord, you'll be permitted freedom and life. But anyone who refuses to do that, you'll, you'll be shot. They were completely terrified. These were young students. They're like 17, 18, 19 years old. And the first seven students trampled on that cross on the way out. And they were given their lives. But the eighth student was a young girl. She walked up to the cross and she knelt down and she prayed for boldness. Then she stood up, walked around the cross and outside where she was shot. 
Strengthened by her example, the remaining 92 students did exactly the same thing. Friends, along with that girl, and along with the prophet Micah, and along with the Lord Jesus Christ, decide to be different. Watch and wait. And pray with confidence. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the true vine, that even though no fruit is found in us, even though we only by nature produce thorns, thank you that he is life itself. And we're amazed that he would give up his life for us, that he would be raised for us. Father, being bound to him, please give us boldness to decide to be different. Keep us looking forward to that day when the Lord Jesus will return to make everything right. And keep us prayerful, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.